We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From the Clark Ford Studio in Oxford, Mississippi, MBW Digital proudly presents the Oxford Exxon Podcast. I'd say thanks for tuning in, but why am I going to give you a round of applause for something you're supposed to do, to be frank? And now, here are your hosts, Chase Parm. And broadcast school has really paid off. And Neil McCready. I deserve to be on TV. Welcome to this edition of the show. I'm Chase Parm, and I went to the Lyceum on the Ole Miss campus this morning to speak with Chancellor Glenn Boyce. We uh, talked about a number of topics, including Chris Beard's uh, fast turnaround of the Ole Miss basketball program, a, uh, a, a large arranged view of what's going on with college athletics right now from an NIL standpoint, a court case standpoint, and more. And then we spent a lot of time on the university as a whole, the, uh, the academics, the enrollment. Ole Miss currently uh, seeing record enrollments as far as retention, its freshman class, its overall enrollment as well. And it's not just beating its previous highs. It is doing things that not many schools around the country are. The enrollment cliff is very real and very much impacting schools across the state of Mississippi and the nation as well. And when you have a lot of students, you need infrastructure. You need places to put them. We go through all those topics. We talk about some of the things coming as far as the uh, the Duff Center, the STEM building, um, long time being built, a lot of uh, a lot of resources put into something that Ole Miss is very excited about right now. So really a great conversation. We hit a number of topics, and I think you will enjoy it as well if you have uh, any stake whatsoever in Ole Miss or uh, care about the institution you want to hear from Chancellor Boyce here as he's in his fifth year almost uh, at the end of the year. It will be about five years since his tenure began back in 2019. So uh, let's get on with it again uh, from uh, Friday, February 2nd. In the morning, uh, again, spoke with Chancellor Glenn Boyce. So here is that conversation right now. Chancellor Glenn Boyce joining us now on the Campbell Clinic Hotline. Chancellor, really appreciate the time. We're in the Lyceum here uh, this morning. Going to talk a lot of academics, a lot of enrollment, a lot of really major things going on, not just locally, but in the state of Mississippi and, and, and nationally as well. But, you know, i got to start with basketball. Tuesday night, the uh, largest crowd in not just pavilion history, but Ole Miss basketball history this Saturday is going to be even bigger, um, sold out, hard sellout for Auburn and the Tigers in town. I was I was speaking with, I know somebody you know as well, Hunter Carpenter this morning. We were trying to come back and figure out this is the most anticipated game since when, and it might have been when he was on the court in the late 90s at this point. I know that you obviously were somewhat involved in the decision to hire Chris and that everything has happened this fast. What's it just sort of been like watching this come to fruition so quickly? Well, first, Chase, thanks for the opportunity to be with you today. I want to begin by saying that uh, one of the things that Chris has talked about tremendously uh, across all sectors has been, you know, we have to have a home court advantage. 
And a home court advantage means a true impact on the game. And for any of you that are out there that know about that, there's a difference between just attending and truly having an impact. And so uh, we thought, and I went and talked to the guys at the beginning of the season, like I do with most of my teams, and I told them and explained to them that this place has never been challenged, meaning this pavilion. We don't know how loud it can be. We don't know if it can be a home court advantage. We've never seen it at its full capacity with everybody totally into the, the event. And I said, that's the challenge. And I said, in order to do that, let me tell you, man, it's about winning, right? You got to win. Uh, and, you know, they play an exciting brand of basketball. So what I did not anticipate is, and nor did Chris, is that it would happen this quickly, okay? Uh, we were excited about this team. He was excited about it, but uh, had no idea that it would happen this quickly. And we're excited about the fact that the community and the university and our students in particular, because it all starts with the students, Chase. It's all about they they get everybody going and then everybody gets into it and uh, saying we have an amazing group of students right now. And uh, one last thing, I want to give a shout out to Keith about uh, that crowd and about the, the enthusiasm, because we kind of ran out of student seating <laughs> and we kind of just said, let them in. They'll find a place to stand or seat or sit, you know. So anyways, uh, we're incredibly excited about uh, just about the passion that our university right now and the community of Oxford has for basketball. And um, that includes that includes both women's and men's. We had a great turnout for the 10 sure. game and that was exciting. Yeah, you've got problems at hand sometimes, but where to put students might be the best problem you could potentially have in all sectors at this point, right? No, no I mean, question. It's, it's, it's that. I, I, I'm going to use this to, to dovetail into enrollment and talk about some of those things in a second. But, you know, you mentioned it. Football has this 11-win season. Everybody seems to have this offseason that is geared toward not playoff or bust, but certainly that expectation, baseball, two years from a national title, all these different things. When you try to figure out what causes the different things, because you guys are not just excelling in enrollment, but enrollment versus the national level and things that we will get to as well. Is there a way to quantify athletics impact on that? I mean, do you have any type of studies that show this does this or whatever to even a more, you know, not even necessarily quantitative, but in any way whatsoever? Uh, we don't have any studies, uh, but we know that the visibility and the projection out there of our programs and, you know, when people see the stadiums alive and when they see our pavilion alive, uh, students sit up and take notice as they're watching games. But what we do understand and what, what it would be very, very complicated to go ahead and quantify something like that. Uh, because we'd have to see what markets were in, who sure. was viewing. I mean, we'd have to really break it down to the to the details in order to figure that out. But there is no question about it uh, from a subjective standpoint. It matters deeply. It matters deeply because what it does is there's no way that our marketing uh, division could ever, nor could we afford to put a a price figure and say, we want you to have a reach nationally. Sure. Okay. And so we get that reach nationally by being a part of the SEC. And so there's no way to understate how important that is to be a part of a conference that is the finest conference in all of America. That matters. And there's so many young people who stay up with the SEC. And, you know, 88% of our students come from the southeastern region of the United States, including our own state, obviously. And so it matters deeply that you're a part of the best conference because people all across the nation are watching your games when they come on. And so because we have a love of athletics all across the Southeast, it helps. Does it feel uh, a little strange to think you're already almost five years into the tenure here toward the end of the year at this point? <laughs> There's no question about it, Chase. I, I, I blink and it seems like another year goes by, you know, and the, the gray hair gets a little deeper. <laughs>
you were you, you took over when I mean as a school the enrollment had was stagnant to down things have been going in in, in some different directions and ways and it, I alluded to it a second ago record record attendance coming in record attendance overall or enrollment not attendance uh see my athletic brain retention has been great as well all these different things are you grading yourself and I'm gonna make do a really open ended one and let you just talk. Are you grading yourself against what was last year, year before? And then how do you manage that against this enrollment cliff and what's going on nationally? What's to come and then happen now? I look around the SEC and there are certainly some schools that are climbing and growing, but that's not the case across the board. Where do you sort of see the success on a micro level, but really a macro level when you look around? Yeah, and and I would tell you that that our our growth isn't by accident. Okay. Um when I first arrived, we we restructured. And we put in an enrollment management division and we we put in new strategies. I hired a tremendous vice chancellor of enrollment management, Eduardo Prieto, and his department is absolutely amazing. Matter of fact, this morning I was blessed to, to go talk to 500 parents and their students at admit day, something we had never done before that I know of. OK, so we put in all these efforts uh, to attract students to our campus in particular and to put emphasis on this so that this division wasn't buried inside of another division because it's that important to us. And so in turn, uh, everything we've done has been strategic. Uh, and so we're we're proud of the strategies that they played out successfully for us. We've changed our marketing and communication division, altered that dramatically, okay, and reached out in a different way with that. And they, they've been an enormous part of this. Uh, now we've got a new website, uh, which, you know, really matters. And when that's fulfilled and complete, it'll be significant too. So every step of the way we've talked about, and we know what's been said in the past is historically true. If we get them to touch this campus, there's a good chance Chase they're ours. And that's very, very true. And so you can't imagine the foot traffic that we have across this campus because we have thousands, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, thousands of parents and potential students come here and visit every year. And I'm gonna tell you who's, who's taking care of them. It's our students, it's our ambassadors. It's those young people that are walking backward all over campus answering questions with people from all over the nation, asking them and leading them. And they are truly incredible. So I give them as much credit as athletics, visibility, or anything else. And then you start talking about a faculty that is empathetic and caring. And you have, a, you, have you know, retention rates of 88 and 89 percent with a great first year experience program and with faculty who who really do care about the students and are, are really amazing in the classroom as well as researchers hey look it all folds together but it takes strategy it takes objectives and you have to measure yourself our spring enrollment right now as we're sitting here is up by almost eight percent again uh, we've got over 33,000 applications for this next year's freshman class. And obviously they all don't come. We couldn't take them if they did, but we do anticipate that that class will once again be the largest in our history and potentially and potentially has the, the potential of going over 6,000 students. Well, when you consider that coming out of COVID, uh, which is kind of this last graduating class, um, coming out of COVID, we had classes of about 3,100. And now we've got freshman classes of 6,000. We're not just growing, we're exponentially growing. And uh, let me put that in a little bit more context sure. uh, for your audience. And that is that this enrollment cliff is a very, very real thing. And there is there is literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of students who are not going into higher ed, 
who once did, and also the birth rates have declined. I'll give you an example of Mississippi alone, uh, because it's it's our primary primary efforts and issues. To start out with, uh, in 1718, I'm going to go back a little bit, there were 41,783 students in K-12 education high schools, okay, and uh, total number. And then all of a sudden, the high school, and that was high school graduates. So now, here we are, 2122, because this is the latest figures that I could get. They're 36,762. We've already declined by 5,000 high school graduates. But then here's the, our, our students. Here's the, the graduates. 1718, 35,000. 2122, We're already there. We're in the cliff. We've been in the cliff. And some people just aren't paying attention to it. The other fact that matters deeply is this. And this is a more, a more ind indication, a greater indication of, of what we need to pay attention to. How many of those 30-some thousand graduates actually go to college? Okay. And that's declined too. And that's a, a, the real scary thought. So two years ago, uh, uh, three years ago, 21,772 went to post-secondary education, community colleges, universities, so on. 2122, 20,883 went. We're declining every single year now. And what's happening is you can't take 20,000 students and spread it across 15 community colleges, eight public universities, eight or nine privates, everybody trying to get our best and brightest from our border states and other universities who are working in the state with online and other things people don't know. There's about 37 true institutions digging for 20,883 students. It doesn't work. The math doesn't work. And so that's what the enrollment cliff is all about. And here's the, here's the, and I'll get off this, but here's the estimated deal. We're estimated uh, in Mississippi from, and it goes back a little ways, from 2012 to 2029, we were estimated to lose 24% of our high school graduates. We're close. When you get to 2019 to 2037, see, this cliff isn't going away. It's estimated that we will decrease by 19%. Now, you've got different people doing different population studies. That's where you get some confusion in the numbers. But the consistency is the decline. And so then here's the last thing about that. The decline is occurring throughout the Southeast. The nation is definitely in decline. But the decline is happening throughout the Southeast. So states are going to work much harder at keeping their students at home. And these selective universities, public universities, of which we're not, um, thank goodness, um, they're going to continue to select the best and the brightest. And then great students are going to continue to want an SEC environment. Mm -hmm. And they're going to look. And here they come. And they're coming in waves. And that's a wonderful thing for our state because when they come to this university and they have a great experience, we can't get better publicity for our state than when they go home, Chase, and talk in their communities about what a great place Mississippi is and what a great place Ole Miss is. And so in turn, the competition is only going to ramp up. And the last thing I'd say about the competition, it is the only thing I think that it is that is uh, it's second to is athletics. <laughs> okay, Because it is enormous competition, not just for the best and the brightest, but for students, period. And the concern, of course, that we would have is, is that we've got eight public institutions that we're supporting in this state. Sure. And you can't have, you know, 
you know, the, the more we grow candidly, because we've got a 25% increase right now in in-state applications for this year, which we're really proud of. And the more we grow, it takes less students from other opportunities across the state. Sure. So there are issues out there that are unfolding in higher ed, not quite as complicated as athletics, but nonetheless, those issues have arrived. The obvious question there, assuming you continue to grow and you're successful in the way that, that you hope moving forward, where do you where are you putting putting them? What's the infrastructure that is involved with this? Because I'm around town, I'm on campus. What are we What are we doing with all these bodies, Chancellor? Uh, well, and we we just got and I appreciate the support of the IHL board. They just passed the 245 million dollar bond uh, issuance for us, and that was incredibly important because. 165 million of it is a new dorm. And then we torque and cannon down. For those of you who know, know where that is. And we're going to build 985 new beds there. Right now, in order to survive until they're built, we're leasing practically every apartment complex yeah. that'll lease to us. And, yeah. uh, you know, where are my, my concerns? Because, you know, we will continue to have freshmen live on campus because it works. That's how we get these high retentions. And that's where they get support. And they need that culture of a university, their first year in particular. Uh, but my, my, I think, largest concern really resonates around my upperclassmen uh, because, um, you know, it's it's an expensive place, Oxford is. I think everybody would admit to that these days, and especially with the success that both Oxford and this university have had. Um, so I need my undergraduates to have a place that they can live and they can afford uh, and some place that is somewhere near campus, you know, uh, because transportation costs and so on and so forth. So, but it's inevitable. This is inevitable, Chase. And you can't have what it was like when I was here back in the 70s, right? It's not going to be that university, nor is it going to be the university of the 80s or the 90s. Um, sooner or later, transportation, as we push parking, which is everybody's concern all the time, and we're going to build a parking garage, want to build two, but one right now, Chase, those things can run from anywhere from 35 to 50 million, right. you know. So you're talking about huge amounts of money just to fix, you know, a couple issues, let alone what we need for accounting buildings and academic growth and progress and all the rest that comes with it, including, you know, taking care of some of our athletic facilities for our young ladies who do such a great job for us. So that's uh, that's what happens, and those are my concerns. And everybody wants to park in front of their classroom, and that was true in the 70s. It's true in the year 2024. Uh, but unfortunately, we're going to have to continue to work on the process of parking and how that's going to fit. This would be your perfect problem, but is there a max enrollment that makes sense for Ole Miss based on those things? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and we've thought long and hard about that. And by the way, we talk about that a lot, so – uh, because we do understand that the community in of itself can only take so much, you know, and we get that, you know, and we understand our impact on a community. By the way, I meet with the mayor and I meet with the people that she brings in and we have a wonderful relationship and we talk about that. OK, you know, it's, it would be nice to be able to get in a restaurant and things like that. Right. Uh, so there there probably is. But here's the challenge, Jason. So your audience knows this is important. The challenge is. Other schools in the SEC are growing because of the SEC, um, what it's all about, you know, and the demand for SEC. Georgia students who don't get in Georgia go across to the University of Tennessee, right? Tennessee students who are on the other side of the state go to Kentucky, right? Sure. I mean, it's we're just 
transferring students all over the place. Okay. So that's not going to cease. And as schools like A&M and other schools grow larger and larger, we have to stay competitive beyond the athletic arenas. We have to be able to hire excellent faculty. We have to retain great faculty. And so all these issues play into this. And we've had our instances where we have gone through search processes, Chase, and we've hired who we think are going to be great people. They've been excited. And before they've ever gotten here, they've come to look, couldn't find what they were looking for in terms of housing, different things like that, because it's a limited pool and the cost. And so in turn, they've headed elsewhere and said, love to come, but can't. See, so we've got the same challenges that so many other people do in so many other industries and businesses. So that's kind of where we are, but um, we work them out. And yes, the max enrollment piece, uh, because tuition is 77% of our funding, um, we have to continue to grow. When we stop growing, the university in of itself will do one of two things, okay? Either it will increase tuition, which I cannot, you know, to a, to a, to a standard that our people can't afford and hurts Mississippians in particular, uh, and we will reduce enrollment, um, that will become problematic because for somebody who paid every penny of their own education as a first-gen guy, that weighs on my heart for about a month and a half while I have to choose what to do. So that's important. And when these other universities decide maybe they want to slow down a little bit, mm-hmm. that'd be helpful. <laughs> I doubt it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be helpful. So, but that's a concern that I have and we're tuition driven. And so we have to, we have to be enrolled through it. For the longest time, I would hear a ton from alumni and stakeholders about in-state versus out-of-state and percentages and those type of things. And I, I don't feel like I hear it as much. I know obviously still very robust from outside the state. You have done uh, as an institution, a much better job of in-state recruiting over the last few years as well. And in getting in on the, the mid-level and the high-level kid from, uh, from those schools inside the state, but for the ones that are out of state and the ones that are coming in and they're getting an SEC experience and then probably going back to their home state or whatever they're doing, is there a strategy on maintaining them as still very active donors, alumni, that type of thing, where they're engaged with the school beyond simply the four years and then going back to being the Georgia fan or the Texas fan or whatever that would look like? Yeah, this is this is such a such an interesting uh, interesting t- conversation because. A couple of things people forget about. First off, uh, a few facts that need to be clarified. Because our out-of-state students come in and pay a, a large sum, okay, usually it's at least three times. Matter of fact, I think tuition for, for last year was like, from in-state was like $49 million and from out-of-state was like $179 million. Oh, wow. So it's three times, four times as much, you know. So you can see the importance, okay. But here's the piece that people don't realize. Part of that importance is allows us to keep our tuition down, in particular in state, you know, and that's a that's a huge help, you know, and we try to help our out of state students, too, by trying to keep tuition down as much as we can for them as well. But um, the other piece I would say about that that's important is uh, the experience, the experience that all students get, regardless of where you come from. And I remind people, Chase, it's kind of funny when people really just argue with me about this and really get on me about, you know, this, this out of state influx, I remind them that I'm out of state. Okay. <laughs> I think they forget that. And, you know, I mean, I'm a Mississippian. I've been here all my life, you know, 40 some years, but I was an out of state guy when I came, you uh-huh. know, so I understand the experience. Uh, but 
the bottom line, the bottom line to it is this, is that we want to be a, a Mississippi university and we will always, always as the flagship of our state, always chase, have a place for a Mississippian. We will never allow a Mississippian and say, no, you're qualified, but you can't come. That's not going to happen under me. I can assure you. Okay. And the second thing is, uh, onto that piece is, um, with that, if there's a seat available, though, we want that seat filled. Sure. We want that seat filled. And we will do everything we can to fill that seat because we know we're a better university if we do. So, What are you seeing as far as enrollment, participation, opportunities at your satellite campuses? We keep talking about Oxford and those type of things, but what does it look like right now, overall picture of the satellites? Yeah, overall, I'd say the satellites are more neutral than they are anything else. I don't think you're seeing a, a large gain in satellite education anywhere right now, really, okay. honestly. Uh, it's kind of running the trend uh, of things at this point in time. Uh, and, and satellite education so often is uh, is adults and the adults sure. that have been in the workforce for years, you know, they're coming back trying to enhance their education, finish their education, so all those, those work. And so they're very, very important parts of our university to do that work. But um, I don't I don't think you're going to see large increases. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. A common misconception about relationships is they have to be easy to be right. Sometimes the best ones happen when both people put in the work to make them great. Therapy can be a great place to work through the challenges and face in all of your relationships, whether it's with friends, work with significant others, or really anyone. When you put that work in, great things can happen in those relationships. BetterHelp is a, an awesome way to do that because, you know, maybe you talk to people who have preconceived notions, family members, they're emotional about topics. This is somebody just for you. They can help you. If you don't like who it is, you can switch providers. You can find somebody else. You can do all these different things with BetterHelp to get the help you need. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. Design can be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And again, switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit BetterHelp.com MPW today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash M-P-W. How's fundraising going overall, the Now and Ever campaign? I mean, I, I'm inundated with obviously the athletic side, but from the overall university side, you know, there's some economic uncertainty and different things and always election years and whatnot. But in general, I think I saw your newsletter from December. It looked like 2023 was pretty successful. Yeah, it's incredibly successful. Uh, uh, one of the things I'm proudest about last year's fundraising efforts was that it was the highest academically in our history in terms of, and, and it, it 
it was higher than athletics. It was higher than everything. And I was so proud of that, you know, because we have so many special things going on here academically with all the new centers and everything that's been developed here, uh, along with all the other efforts that are going on in each of our schools. And so our, our alumni have, have stepped up big time. And as far as the Now and Ever campaign, we're, the last time I checked, um, of course, the, the, the goal was $1.5 billion. And I want to address that for just a second. $1.5 billion, and we are right around probably $50 million away. Okay. And we will reach the goal. And that's exciting. That's it's not much. Exciting. We need like one point five billion. You know, like, really, I, I, you know, we're, you know, I, I hate to get overconfident, but sure. But our our people have been so so wonderful. We could we could complete it before the end of this year uh, for us. And I would say this about it. But what people what people need to to recognize, uh, and sometimes so, and I have to educate my legislators about this from time to time. Look, uh, that's a big number. And when people hear, wow, you know, you're you've raised one point four four billion, you know, they think you must be the richest university in the southeast. Right. They don't really understand that almost all of that is restricted funding. Right. Sure. And all of that is, you know, and, and, and that's the way it works. And it should be. People have various interests across the university. They give to those interests to make us better. But it's not money that is just free for us to do anything we would like to do with. You know, most of it is restricted to make us a better university in all the different areas of our university. Uh, and that includes, of course, that sometimes people don't realize that number. UMMC is included in that number. OK. And, uh, you know, our our research initiatives, some of those are included in that number, along with athletics and, you know, of course, our academic side up here as well. So it's a combination of everything we do at the university that makes up that number. And it's and, and it's a big number over a period of years, a long period of years. On average, we average right now about 150 to 160 million a year uh, in actual fundraising that's new just for that year. And that's that's awfully strong. And we're just really, really grateful for all of our alumnus. And by the way, that's the other piece. An enormous amount of those alumnus live someplace else, right? They live out of state and they've made their lives out of state. And they have sent their children back. That's part of our out of state. And they also talk about us all the time. So I can't imagine, you know, uh, them not being out there telling parents all of them down the street, just take a look at all this, mm -hmm. right? They're some of our best recruiters as well. And they're everywhere. You gave a little foreshadowing there with, gifts and donations and, and different things. The Duff Center close. STEM building finally getting here to uh yeah. to get accomplished. I know it's been uh dear to you for a while. It has to it has has to feel a certain way to be pretty pretty close to the doors opening now. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. And for for the audience that's not aware, it's two hundred and two thousand square feet, about a hundred and eighty million dollar project. And uh Tom and Jim Duff uh, gave us twenty six million dollars to kick it off. And the Ford Foundation was fabulous. They've given us twenty some million for it too. Uh but uh it's going to be the finest, and I say this unabashedly and pridefully, uh the finest instructional STEM building in America. It's not designed for research, okay? Uh it wasn't set up for that. It was set up purely for to educate our students inside the curriculums and inside the different programs of STEM education. And so the technology that's going to be in that facility, the labs that are going to be in that facility, they are going to be right on the edge of the best that you can purchase and buy. 
And we're excited about what it's going to do. And we're excited about the students who experience their classrooms in there and their classes. They're going to walk out with skills and talents that, you know, we think is going to make them competitive and very competitive field of STEM for their careers. The part of nursing is here now has done well too, correct? The nursing school, sorry. That all, all the movement, the improvements there down here everywhere has been a successful, correct? Oh yes, absolutely. We're we're excited about the nursing program, the BSN coming up here. Sure. You know, and uh we're as a matter of fact I had a conversation about that yesterday to find out where the construction was. Okay. You know, we're you know, <laughs> probably my probably my only real complaint about about anything is and it's no fault of anybody's period, even the industry, but Oh, construction takes a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot with the dorms and things you talk about is, hey, a thousand beds. It's like, that's really expensive for a thousand beds, you know, and it's a problem and it's a Band-Aid and all. It's yeah. it, it's all those type of things. This this may be a complete no. This I didn't have this written down and didn't even think to ask it until now, but Amazon just announced this data center in Madison County in the middle of the state. Does that have direct or in, indirect impact on Ole Miss in any way? I think it always does. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that that I've been committed to, and I have a long history of economic development in the opportunities I've had to lead different places, you know, uh, and I've had I've been involved in some of the biggest, uh, the car industry, for example, and so on that have come into the state and deeply involved. And so in turn, um, I, I like ec economic development. And I like to, I want our university to be seen as a university that helps grow the economy of the state. It's very important to me. Matter of fact, uh, uh, I think we will even be more involved in the future. So anytime something like that happens, my first question is this, okay? How can I take care of the labor market? All right. Because if we can provide the labor market, okay, uh, and it's a quality educated labor market, more and more companies will recognize who we are and what we're about in Mississippi, and companies will be successful. And that was our biggest concern when Nissan announced, you know, we'd never made a car in Mississippi in our lives, mm -hmm. you know, and we were going to be expected to produce all these men, these automotive workers, including the supplier workers, which is an enormous number. So it's the same situation here. You know, what kind of what kind of technicians do they need? What kind of technical skills do they need and degrees do they need? I'm going to be thinking about that. You know, and do we have enough emphasis in these areas? Uh, I met with MDA yesterday um, and we talked about what their future looks like as Bill Court comes in. All right. Very important for us to understand what their how their mission is and what they're looking for and how they're going to redesign and move into the future because we want to be a, a player in there. And uh, so in turn, but it's not just that. Uh, I believe that Oxford's a bright light city. Okay. I believe that with all my heart. And and I know that some people would like Oxford to remain, you know, the small enclave, and I get that. I do. I really do understand that. Okay. But I also understand that Mississippi, the competition to keep students at home, a piece of it is not just really, really good careers, not just a job, but good careers. But a piece of it is bright light cities where there's so much activity that young people can get engaged and get involved in. And that's why they're going to, to Nashville and to Atlanta and to Houston and all the, the surrounding competition. A big part of it is they want something that we don't have right now. But nothing's to say we can't have. And I believe that Oxford is a place where we can recruit the type of businesses and industries that will that want our graduates. And every time, and I'll tell you this, Jason, and it's this is 90% of the time, I promise you. You know, everybody's taking graduation pictures out on the front steps of the Lyceum. Sure. 
So I walk out and everybody looks great and all of our students look amazing and they're taking the pictures. So I always stop and try to visit whenever I have time. And I say, you know, tell me what's next. And 90% of the time, the first statement out of their mouth is, Chancellor, we don't want to leave. <laughs> we don't want to leave. You know, if we could, if we, I said, you know, so if you could build a, a career in Oxford, if we could build a career in Oxford, we'd be here all of our lives. I can't tell you how many discussions mm -hmm. I have. So I asked them right behind that. Where you going? Same city as I just mentioned, right? So, yeah, it isn't just a an issue of you know I'm an out of state student and therefore I'm going back to my state. It's bigger than that. Where you go? Because we have an awful lot of great Mississippi students who are heading out too. You know, I'm going to switch back to athletics quickly. The last thing, appreciate the uh, the time. Uh, not to get overly down in the minutia, but when you see NIL legislation and everything going on in college athletics right now, and you hear of revenue sharing or making them employees or whatever comes from this as Congress does or does not get involved, just 10,000 feet in the air, what do you see as the landscape and the sustainability of this right now? Um, 10,000 feet in the air, we need a complete different model for college athletics. And this has been coming, Chase. And unfortunately, we we didn't address it in time. OK. Uh, and when I say we, um, I, I would I would say that's everybody that's involved that should have made the decisions to move this forward. OK. To see the landscape change. And we just didn't get it done. And we're going to need we're going to need to continue to work very hard to figure out a new model of college athletics. And when I say a new model, uh, a new model where our student athletes are looked at a little bit differently, certainly. OK, in terms of, you know, the, what they're providing for a university like ours and our student athletes are amazing and they deserve uh, an awful lot. OK, but on the flip side, and this is very important, I think what I'm about to say, and I've stressed this, you know, we as SEC presidents, chancellors meet every month and sometimes we meet every two weeks. I mean, we're into this because we have to be right. Yeah, sure. You know, it's, it's important for our, for our fan bases and our alumni and everybody else. So we talk about this all the time and we work trying towards trying to find a solution. But I remind everybody, and we've got amazing leadership in Greg Sonic. He's incredible. But here's the thing. Uh, everything moving forward has to have some element of leveling the playing field. You can't move forward and say, we're just going to take and open this completely wide open where it's all based on money and money will drive realignment. Money will drive whether you're a university in the upper tier or mid tier or whatever. And you lose being an SEC member. I mean, I'm looking way out, but way out means in athletics, five, seven, 10 years, mm -hmm. who knows, because the money is going to drive universities out of the model and into a different model. And it's scary because leveling the playing field, and people would say, well, the field's never been truly leveled. People build big facilities and all that. There's truth to that. But what's happening right now will take, will take this to a whole new level. And it will take where schools have enormous alumni bases and enormous students, enormous fans, enormous fans and everything else. And will create a different culture and a different environment when the money is going to continue to drive the recruitment of athletes and everything else. 
when that happens. And so like it or not, and I don't know the answer, uh, you have to provide some type of capping system at some point. And I don't know exactly how that needs to be done, but I do know there has to come one at some point because otherwise you will, you will absolutely, absolutely change college athletics in an incredible way. And you'll change many universities as they decide that they can't sustain this kind of financial model. And you know this, Chase. Um, one of the things that I think is out there that isn't true. Um, now, now you know me, I'm a huge athletic guy. But what isn't true is that athletics makes all this money. Sure. And by the way, that isn't just here. Yeah. It's everywhere. pretty much everywhere. Okay. And yes, athletics is dealing in big dollars, but there's big expenses, right? Mm -hmm. And so on. And here's the the last piece I'd say about that. And, and all these lawsuits are, there's one right after another being filed. It's just, sure. it's amazing, by the way. Uh, and um, I would say this, uh, which is very important, I think, too, trying to hold this accountable is getting more and more challenging. And you can't make a new model without making sure that you can hold it accountable. And that's the second piece. you got to have a model that levels the playing field when you make decisions on policy, okay? But that you also have to have a model that you can enforce. And sometimes with all the lawsuits and all the court cases, there comes a point where you can't enforce a lot of the model. And when that happens, you either change and adapt or it's gone. Take your pick. You've been in the rooms. Is that doable without congressional change? Uh, there's one piece of congressional change that is, I think, imperative, and that's antitrust legislation. Okay. We've got to have some protection on antitrust, you know, because you know you've got to you've got to have the ability to to talk uh, across different conferences. Otherwise, you have you have more chaos than we already do. But I want to say one one last thing about that, uh, and we could talk for the Not rest of the day on that. In, but one last thing that matters deeply, Chase, nobody needs to forget about the student-athlete and all this. Because what I'm concerned about to a, to a large degree is people are forgetting about, um, and this is in the weeds, but, it, but this is impacting student-athletes' lives, is that um, it is incredibly important that while all this money's flowing in and all this conversation about money and NILs, you know, I have a, I have, you know, I, I know some more student athletes and they talk to me and they say, you know, I get all these emails on NIL opportunities. I, I don't have time to go through them. I don't know what they are. You know, um, our student athletes are inundated with this issue more than people realize. And, it, and it's not, it's not always positive, you know, because for them, there's, they're, they're just trying to go to school. And they're trying to play their sport at the highest levels they can. And then if they can get some more resources and get paid some, and if they can, you know, do some work with NIL and benefit from their performance and all the years they put in, that's outstanding. That's wonderful. But we're here to work with them to get a degree. So here, let me play this scenario out for you because this is happening. And this is, this is sad. Okay. Look, degrees change lives. I don't care what anybody says, college still matters and degrees change lives. We're real blessed. 88% of our student athletes meet the academic performance standards. We're graduating them left and right. Their GPAs are amazing. They're, they're 
we take care of them and they do their part. They're very responsible. But think about the athlete who's getting in the portal all the time because they don't get playing time. They don't like the program. They want they want to see what their value is on an open market, just to be candid about it. And what about those credits? Are they transferring with them? You know, does it do they lose credits along the way? Uh, where are they in this pipeline called a degree? And the truth of the matter is they're losing credits and their time to degree completion just got extended. And sometimes when they don't make it into the league, OK, or they don't make it into the next level, that time to extension gets in the way and they don't go back. And I promise you, the ones I've talked to who didn't go back have all said the same thing to me. Chancellor, my greatest regret is I didn't finish. I didn't get it done. That's They all say that. My greatest regret, I didn't walk that stage. I'm concerned about this. And I'm concerned. I'm not saying I have any answers for it, but I'm concerned about how we're educating our student-athletes about that issue before, you know, people want to say, well, you know, you can't, you can't do NIL and collective work, you know, before they enroll and so on and so forth. All that's fine. But are we doing enough work before they get in the portal on what's going to happen to you? You know, you need to look here and pay attention to this, okay, because it matters. And then they don't know about paying taxes. They don't know about these things. We're doing a great job trying to educate them on the financial pieces of things including that this money doesn't come in forever. You know, save, invest, and what all that means, mm -hmm. you know. They need that. Every student needs that, by the way. Sure. My wife would tell you it's a CPA. Yeah, that sure. That's a major fall down of, you know, of, of you know, freshman, sophomore year. We need to put that in, in for students, and I, don't, I think she's probably right. But they need that. And then the last piece that is true, and it's out there, look, You've got unscrupulous people who will take advantage of these athletes, you know, and they trust them. Okay. And somehow they've gotten into that inner sanctum and, you know, these athletes, they've got to have some, some place where they can turn and say, I trust. And that trust is fulfilled. That matters. These are the things that matter, you know, and I hope people don't ever forget that, that in all this, conversation and dialogue and all the controversy and chaos that's happening and it is very chaotic we're still giving them an education we're still providing housing we're still providing wonderful food mm -hmm. great swag all these things right sure. Player development great facilities you name it we're giving them great health care too everything we possibly can do for them to make them a successful student athlete and you know what? When we lose, and this is probably, probably everybody would have said maybe years ago this was going to happen, but this is probably one of those most dangerous moments when the student piece of this won't get left behind by any means, but doesn't have enough emphasis placed on it. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want your audience to forget that that's what it's about. That's their future. On a much lighter note, the uh, baseball and softball teams start in Hawaii. Can you stay up for 2 a.m. to see a final pitch of a of a game out there? 
I, I can tell you this right now. The answer to that is no. Okay. <laughs> I can't stay up. Uh, I'll check it in the morning. But I will say this, you know, you know, I never take advantage of trips like that. <laughs> Wait, he's going with baseball, Chancellor. Yeah. So, hey. Okay. Yeah, well, you see, I didn't know that. You know, yeah, yeah. You know I, I really like that guy, but he doesn't always invite me on yeah, these yeah, things, yeah. you know. No, I'm just kidding. It'd be, it'd be great to make the trip, but I don't have any time for it. But I would love it uh, just to be out there with the guys and the girls and the ladies and everything because I just like being around them. Uh, so I am getting a chance in a, in a couple of weeks to go play a really wonderful golf course with the golf team. And okay. I'm excited about that just to spend time with them. How many rounds you play a year? Uh, I don't, I don't get in a whole lot, so okay. I'm going to be uh, I'm low be, expectations. Uh, I'm absolutely going to be an embarrassment. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I know you have a busy day. Really appreciate it. And uh, let's do it again as, as time allows. Thank you, Chase. I appreciate you. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.